just after 7.30 now on Radio 3. And now it's time for, of course, Reflections from Asia with Harvey Stockman. This is a Personal View program. The Chinese victory celebration in Beijing on September the 3rd, and particularly the earlier Russian victory celebration in Moscow on May the 8th, all carefully concealed a still enduring reality. World War II is not yet over. It's faintly possible that Japan and Russia are belatedly trying to rectify this situation. The Japanese failure to surrender once the tide of the Second World War turned decisively against it not merely resulted in the Americans dropping atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It also gave the Soviet Union's dictator, Joseph Stalin, the opportunity he craved. A chance for Russia to take its revenge on Japan for its defeat in the 1904-05 Russo-Japanese War and to repossess territory that Russia had then lost to Japan. Had the Japanese government seen the looming prospect of defeat much earlier than it did, Stalin would have been denied that opportunity. Until May 1945, the Russians were preoccupied with defeating Hitler and Germany. Soviet forces then played no part at all in the Pacific War. But once victory in Europe was achieved, Stalin decided to deploy massive Soviet forces in the Soviet Far East. By late June and early July, trains carrying troops, tanks, ammunition and supplies were proceeding eastwards on the Trans-Siberian Railway every two or three minutes. At the Yalta summit early in 1945, Roosevelt and Churchill had urged Stalin's participation in the war against Japan. The return of Sakhalin and the Kuril chain of islands to Soviet sovereignty were offered to the Russians as an inducement. The fact that the southern Kuril Islands were not the fruit of past Japanese aggression, but had been given to Japan under an 1855 treaty which Japan freely negotiated with Tsarist Russia, was either forgotten or ignored. Stalin agreed to accept these territorial gifts, but he planned to take even more. As the Japanese still procrastinated over surrendering, even after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Stalin launched his offensive in Manchuria a mere seven days before Hirohito announced Japan's surrender. But as US troops began to land in Japan unopposed late in August, Russian troops were still fighting the Japanese in China, in Sakhalin, and finally down the Kuril chain of islands. Russo-Japanese fighting was still continuing on September the 2nd as the Japanese surrender was finally signed on board the USS Missouri in Tokyo Bay. Emboldened by his military success, Stalin even demanded that the Soviet Union be given a zone of occupation in Japan in northern Hokkaido. Prodded by his own shrewd sense and by General Douglas MacArthur's advice, Truman emphatically said no. But Stalin was still able to make a famous broadcast to the Russian people on September the 5th, exulting that Russia's defeat 40 years earlier in the Russo-Japanese War had finally been avenged. Ever since then, Japan has had to live with and has tried to alter the consequences. Throughout the Cold War, Russian troops were stationed uncomfortably close to northern Japan. 
Diplomatic relations between Japan and the Soviet Union only resumed in 1956, after Stalin's death. But a Russo-Japanese peace treaty has until now remained a step too far for either side. If any negotiations were to take place, Japan will probably be willing to concede Russian sovereignty over Sakhalin Island and over the northern Kuril Islands. But Japan will certainly require that Russia conceded the return of sovereignty closer to Hokkaido. So far, Moscow has remained unwilling to concede restored Japanese sovereignty over the Habamai Islets and Shikotan Island, even though these islands are all adjacent to Hokkaido and previously were always considered to be administratively part of Japan. Moscow has also insisted on retaining sovereignty over Kunashiri, even though that too is adjacent to Hokkaido and also over Etorofu. The Russo-Japanese Treaty of Shimoda in 1855 placed the agreed Russian-Japanese sea border between Etorofu Islands and the rest of the Kuril chain of islands. The Japanese would like that border to be restored. During the superpower Cold War, the Soviet Union rejected any thought of concessions to a Japan which was closely allied with the United States. It was the easier for Russia to do this because the previous Japanese populations of Etorofu, Kunashiri, Shikotan and the Habomai Islets, the four parts of what came to be called Japan's Northern Territories, were driven out during or immediately after the 1945 Russian conquest. Moscow thereby made sure that there would be no popular agitations against Russian rule in the islands it had conquered. But overall, Japan stuck to the demand that the border should return to what was first agreed in 1855 and that Russia must return all four islands as an essential precondition for any peace treaty. This basic impasse has remained in place for 59 years and may yet continue for a while, except that some recent developments appear to offer a thin ray of hope that the impasse might diminish even come to an end. On the one hand, former President, now Prime Minister, Dmitry Medvedev has visited the Northern Territory several times. While Russia's real ruler, President Vladimir Putin, has so far avoided going there. On the other hand, recent negotiations were carried out in such a way that change seemed faintly possible and a compromise seemed conceivable, even though the enduring impasse has still remained in place. Medvedev became the first Russian leader to visit the Northern Territories when, as president, he paid a brief visit to Kunashiri in November 2010. Before that, Boris Yeltsin had been the highest-ranking Soviet visitor, briefly visiting in 1990 and observing that Kunashiri suffered the same neglect that was commonplace in remote parts of the Soviet Union. In 2010, Medvedev's brief visit was viewed negatively in Japan as yet another sign that the Russians had no intention to let go of their 1945 conquests. In 2010, the then Prime Minister, Naoto Khan, termed Medvedev's visit an unforgivable outrage and recalled the Japanese ambassador from Moscow. 
On this next visit early in July 2012, Medvedev again stressed that Kunashiri was a part of Russia and he echoed China's irredentist logic in the South China Sea as he reportedly suggested that the southern Kurils had been our land since ancient times. We will not give up an inch of territory. Naturally, the visit itself and statements like this once again aroused Japanese anger. But this time the ambassador was not recalled. The Daily Yomiuri, the English version of Japan's largest newspaper, intoned that there has been absolutely no improvement in the new Russian administration's attitude towards Japan. But actually, there had already been an improvement. On June the 18th, 2012, then-Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihiko Noda had met Russian President Vladimir Putin on the sidelines of the G20 meeting at Los Cabos in Mexico. Putin and Noda were widely reported as agreeing to, quote, reactivate, unquote, negotiations between the two nations on the long-standing territorial dispute over the four islands off Hokkaido. So the Yomiuri queried, was that agreement actually meaningless? Russia's shrugging off of Japan's claims just when a new relations it was forming cannot be ignored. But then Yomiuri unusually suggested that time was not necessarily on Japan's side and warned that Japan needed to react with something more than plain anger. Quote, if nothing is done, the Northern Territories will become more solidly Russian through further infrastructure development and military build-up, pushing the possibility of the island's return further and further away, unquote. From this point on, the story gets complicated but a more positive thrust in Russo-Japanese relations also emerges. Thus, Medvedev's visit to Kunashiri was not allowed to disrupt ties. The Japanese made the usual protests about the visit and what Medvedev had said. The Russians declined to accept them, but refrained from protesting the protests. It was revealed that neither Prime Minister Noda nor President Putin actually used the word reactivate at that Los Cabos meeting. This meant that the Japanese Foreign Ministry had misled the media and the public when it knew it was the sole source for an important story. But the hard fact remains that Russo-Japanese relations briefly continued to be reactivated. This was clearly illustrated when the then-Japanese Foreign Minister Goichiro Gemba was invited to meet his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, at the Black Sea Resort of Sochi on July the 28th, 2012, and he also met President Putin at the same time. As the Yomiuri noted, though his true intention was not clear, Putin seems to have expressed his willingness to settle the territorial dispute. We would like to continue territorial negotiations with Japan to seek a mutually acceptable solution, Putin reportedly told Gemba. In Russian media, Foreign Minister Lavrov was also quoted as telling Gemba that while Russian officials would continue to visit the Kurils, we are prepared for a mutually respectful dialogue on a peace treaty and we want it to be held in a quiet, objective atmosphere of equality. But perhaps the most positive outcome from those Sochi exchanges was an agreement to continue talks on the territorial dispute at three levels. 
between Russian and Japanese national leaders, between their foreign ministers, and between their deputy foreign ministers. But such talks had got nowhere when the DPJ government was decisively defeated in the 2012 Japanese general election. Yet a fascinating development in Russo-Japanese relations has been that the same equally intriguing, but this time potentially more productive, series of Russo-Japanese exchanges has been taking place with the Liberal Democratic Party government as took place earlier with the DPJ. Foreign Minister Fumio Kishida has discussed the territorial issue with Foreign Minister Lavrov. Negotiations between Deputy Foreign Ministers' level are being arranged, as agreed earlier at Sochi. Critically, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has met President Putin on ten occasions since he was elected Prime Minister, often at summit meetings which both leaders have attended. Abe himself visited Russia in 2013 and issued a joint declaration with Putin in which the two leaders agreed to order their foreign ministers to speed up talks on developing mutually acceptable options for a solution without detailing what this solution might involve. When the two leaders met again recently on September the 28th, 2015 in New York during the United Nations Annual General Session, this pledge was reiterated and Abe stressed his desire to speed up arrangements for a Putin visit to Japan. When Prime Minister Medvedev visited Kunashiri again last August, Japanese officials did not even mention it. So what do these straws in the wind add up to? Russia has long made it clear that a peace treaty must be signed before any territorial adjustments can be made. Japan has long made it clear that a peace treaty will only be signed if it allows for the return of the northern territories to Japanese sovereignty. The Japanese can argue that the southern half of Kunashiri is surrounded on three sides by Hokkaido. But would the Russians respond? The lengthening series of Russo-Japanese contacts could diminish the intransigence that has characterised this and most territorial disputes. Last but not least, will the increasing pressure of a rising China inadvertently serve to end this territorial impasse? <laughs>